This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Before I get to my guest, George Hodgman, author of Bettyville, I want to share a little about how this podcast got started and is made. I started this show six years ago with an idea to talk to authors about their most recent published work. It has grown, I think, into an incredible archive of interviews that highlight both the craft of writing and the themes the writers are exploring in their work. I've committed to conducting at least 40 interviews a year, but I've tended to hover around 45 to 48 meaning I basically read a book a week all year. Until three months ago, I was funded by Aspen Public Radio. That funding has ended, but I am committed to continuing this show. What does it take? Audio equipment, hosting services, high-speed internet, which I don't have at my house, so I have to find a place to do this, and time. I read books after my day job, before my day job, and most weekends. I'm editing, I'm writing, and producing the show, even on weekends when I have a sore throat and I don't feel good. I've dragged myself out of bed to make sure I produce this episode for you. While it's a labor of love, at some point it's also labor. And if you appreciate these shows, if you learn something about writing, reading, about the world around you, I'm kindly asking you to donate to the production and upkeep and future of this show. I literally can't do it without you. So please, if you enjoy this podcast, please keep listening, keep downloading, invite a friend or two to subscribe, rate the podcast on iTunes, and last, please consider donating to keep this podcast going at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Every donation counts in building a community of listeners. And for your donations, I'm offering various gifts, which include extras from the interviews that aren't in this episode, writing tips from the authors I interview, and books sent right to your door. Similar to public radio, every donation counts and will keep this show on the air. Please know your patronage is essential. And on to the show, which was recorded when my voice was in better condition. My guest is George Hodgman, author of the memoir, Bettyville. Hodgman is a veteran magazine and book editor and has worked at Simon & Schuster, Vanity Fair, and Talk Magazine. He lives in New York City and Paris, Missouri. His memoir, Bettyville, chronicles Hodgman's return to his Missouri home to care for his ailing 91-year-old mother as he confronts his past, his gay identity, and the silences that existed in his home growing up. Since this interview was done, Hodgman's mother, Betty, passed away. We began by discussing Hodgman's move back to Paris, Missouri, when his mother lost her driver's license. He said the first thing he did when he arrived home from living in New York was write down this memory. She was always going, going somewhere. And uh, she drove fast. And I had this memory of my mother driving me to this kindergarten that I attended. She would have to drive me about 10 miles where I met a bus, and we were always late, and my mother would always dawdle in front of the mirror and play with her hair and smoke Kent cigarettes, and then at the very last possible minute, we would dart out, and she would hit the gas, and we listened to KXOK St. Louis DJ Johnny Rabbit and, and sing along to the song. 
and I've had that picture in my mind for a long time. I've I've remembered that, and so I started writing down scenes after that, and watching someone go through this this loss, this dementia thing. You know, I I I just I could see how hard she was fighting. It was like two sides of her, the part of her that was lucid and the part of her that was growing more and more confused and all this fear, and I sensed this fear. And I think that I just wanted to kind of bear witness, really, to the fact that this was, you know, to me, a heroic thing that was going on. And um, when I first started working in publishing, I was very interested in, like, movie stars and powerful people and this and that. But the older I've gotten the more I have been moved and interested by just very ordinary battles. Does that scene that you remembered going in the car with her embody her for you, or is that just one piece? That embodied a certain part of her. This, I think it was a desire to get out of the house. I think it was a very American need to move. I think my mother had a tad bit of depression. I think she fought it by getting out of the house. You know, there were a lot of parts of my mother that that picture seemed to represent. So when you started writing, and in, in, I think this is pretty much in the beginning of the book, you're talking about your dad had died and you wrote this sentence. This is just the back half of it. She survived to give me a gay man whose life she has never understood a place to call home. Can you talk a little bit about that sentence and what it means to you and writing it? That's an interesting thing to focus on because I, you know, I really did think about not having that sentence because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, you don't want to say that you're able to stay alive for someone else if you're sick. I mean, obviously that's not the case, but I do think that my mother wanted to stay in this house and wanted, there's a lot of things that my mother maintained about her life so that I would still have a, a home and a place to come to. And I think that one place where my mother and I both really connect is my mother's not sentimental, but we're both sentimental about home. And she understands that about me, and I understand that about her, uh, though hers is much more veiled. I really do think one of the reasons that she's held on and held on to this house and held on to our lives as they were is because she knew that this was an important place for me. Yeah, when you say a place to call home, it sort of infers that you didn't feel at home in other places. What does home mean to you? It's a very important word to me. Uh, my parents always said that when I was a little kid, I, if we were away too long, I would always say, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. And home, I just, as a little kid, felt a great love. You know, I loved our house. Our house was like a person to me. And whatever issues we had, my parents were a safety to me. I was an only child. And here I was in this relationship that was filled with love, and, and I felt safe. There were times during my life in New York City where I felt at home. There was a t time during the AIDS crisis when I fell into a group of people, a group of my peers, and we had this house on Fire Island, and that was, that felt like home. That felt like a community. But I think it's very true to say that I have always 
been trying to replicate a kind of home and a kind of safety and identity and connectedness in the world that I found with my parents and that it it has never been the same. So when you left there, you went to college in Missouri, and then when you left to move to New York, you at that point had really come out with your sexuality to yourself and had had relationships. And then the AIDS epidemic was in full swing. And one of the things you did and that seemed to really haunt you was this idea that you had AIDS and if you would die, how that would affect your parents. And so you wrote a letter to your parents that you were kind of constantly editing. And I found that really interesting, not only that you were writing this letters upon your death that they would get, but that other people were doing the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't think I was the only one by far who was who thought a lot about the effect of our parents on our parents if we if we got AIDS. It was I think a pretty constant kind of contemplation that was going on with a lot of people my age and you, you just didn't want to put them through it. You didn't want to put them through the horrible thing of, you know, their son dying and and um a really bad death, what was then a really bad death, and um, probably not to say that there's a good death, but but also having to face the social stigma. There was so much social stigma around AIDS, and um, you know, in this part of the country, and in you know there was there there were a lot of people who made AIDS seem like a biblical plague against the gays, and so. People from places like I came from thought a lot about having their parents have to deal with a lot of dumb, mean stuff. It was hard times. I was just struck by the fact that you, you know, that all these people were writing letters that that fear translated into this action. And yeah, well, I think that was you wanted to leave something. And you wanted to leave them with some kind of reassurance. You wanted to leave them with love. You wanted to leave them with yourself, some part of yourself. And we were really young. I didn't have a a last will and testament because I didn't have anything to leave anybody, you know, some books and some records and a popcorn popper. And so you wanted to speak to them from the grave at this moment when they were going through this terrible pain. And I actually went to memorial services where people left letters to be read out loud. And I went to memorial services where people, you know, read read all these letters that, you know, where mothers read letters that their sons had left them. I think there were a lot of letters. So as your life progressed in New York, you had a series of high-pressure jobs, um, editing jobs at publishing houses, editing jobs at Vanity Fair. And you were always looking for approval from your bosses, especially at Vanity Fair. And at the same time, it seems like your life was going a little bit off the rails because you were going to summer in Fire Island and got into cocaine and, and other drugs. And how are you balancing all this? And when you had to go back and write about it, did you gain any insight that you didn't have at the time? I really didn't want to write about me. The first drafts of the book were so much about just the experience here with my mother's illness, and I was encouraged to write about me because people felt that they had to know more about the speaker 
And I also wanted to show, I think, this need for approval and this work, you know, feeling like, oh, I have to work harder than anybody else to distinguish myself because I have to give my parents success. I have to have something to give to my parents. You know, there weren't going to be any children. There was, I had to give them something. And um, so I think I felt that pressure. I, I think only children like myself also feel a burden of that. Like you, you're carrying the entire weight of your parents' expectations. And so I think there was that that was kind of driving me somewhat, plus my own individual ambition to make things. And I think that the the drugs, my drug experience is really, really similar to you know a whole lot of my peers, men at that time who lived through AIDS and and. Drugs were not an uncommon way of coping, not just with AIDS, but I think also with the fact that, you know, like me, they had a lot of issues with their parents and and also with, you know, coming out and being gay with gay men, learning how to do that. And we were all somewhat inhibited, and I think drugs were a lot, uh, were a way to blast off a lot of inhibition. So, yeah, when, you know, between work and play, a lot was going on with me. And and because of AIDS, so much of our development, so much, our emotional development, our, you know, so much was delayed when we finally got some sense of relief that we might live or that the dying had, had sort of stopped for a little while, that we were ready to party, that we felt entitled in a certain way because we missed all these years of carefree youth. Another thing that you wrote about is the fact that when you got home, I mean, you never really had a discussion with your parents about your sexuality. Your dad um, caught you making out with your boyfriend once. I mean, they had to have known on a deep level, but when you got home and were with your mom, you asked her if your parents ever talked about you when you weren't around in your sexuality, and they never did, and that really surprised you. That was a real hard thing. It actually happened after my mother and I, uh, you know, my mother had 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 my coming out thing. And and I asked them, you know, I asked her about what they kind of, they'd come to together with it, and they just hadn't discussed it at all. And that, that made me feel even, that made me feel very taboo. You know, it was like this was such a bad thing that they couldn't even talk about it amongst themselves. And it made me sad. It made me sad that they didn't seem to even have that that level of intimacy with, with each other. And then I think, to a degree, it's generational. I think that you know, basically, we all know how to talk about a lot more things out loud than we once did. This book is, I would say, very intricate in its structure, um, yeah. both in time because you're set going back and forth in time, not only just from the present to the past, but near present, future present, like it's really complicated. Did you sit down and write it that way? Like, how did you put it together? I'm not very capable of reading straight chronology. I think it's boring. I, it's, and I've, I've always been interested in people who are formally inventive. Like, I don't know, Ian McEwen and, and there were, you know, various people who um, 
there are chronological sagas that I find very engaging, but I think that structure and I think, you know, one's way of writing is is determined by who you are and that my experience as my consciousness is inside, outside. Something may be going on. You know, I'm following what's going on, but I'm also having an internal experience about it. And sometimes I'm thinking about the past in the midst of the present. Maybe or maybe not do other people have that same kind of aggregate of experience. And so the structure was determined by who I am. And also by the fact that I, you know, I grew up reading poetry. I love poetry. And so my um, influence is sort of poetic structure. But it's also, I think, one of the things that I always say is, I mean, I'm influenced by performance. And it's a one, it's a soliloquy. It's a, it's a first person thing, this book. And I'm also influenced by music. If you see that there's a lot of, there are things that come back and can return, and um, there's a, there aren't choruses, but there there's there's repetition throughout, and um, so I was that was just the structure that I was interested in was that kind of like thing where you don't understand what something means, and but later it pays off, and also various kinds of connection. Like this is a book. One of the things in this book is. It's about words. It's about words that aren't said, but it's also about words that are said and how can that can be healing. There's a point in my, um, in this book when I'm in in the English class as a freshman in college and I hear poetry said out loud. I hear words, feelings said out loud and it's just enormously moving to me. And then later on when I go to, you know, 12-step meetings, and I hear people telling their stories, saying their biographies, their their struggles out loud in their stories as a way to get sober, get clean. That is very moving to me. So the book is, you know, one of the things that's going on in this book is this sort of contrast between words unspoken and words spoken. And that kind of thing... You know, that was what I was looking to do in the structure. Well, tell me about your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Okay. It's not a passage, it's just a poem. It's my favorite piece of writing. It's called Little Sleep's Head, Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight by Galway Canal. You scream, waking from a nightmare, when I, sleepwalking into your room, pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight. You cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I have stood by you as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. Little Maud, I would blow the flame out of your silver cup. I would suck the rot from your fingernail. I would brush your sprouting hair of the dying light. I would scrape the rust off your ivory bones. I would help death escape through the little ribs of your body. I would alchemize the ashes of your cradle back into wood. I would let nothing of you go. 
washerwomen feel the clothes fall asleep in their hands, and hens scratch their spell across hatchet blades, and rats rock away from the cultures of the plague, and iron twists weapons towards the true north, and grease refuses to slide in the machinery of progress, and men feel as free on earth as fleas on the body of men, and lovers no longer whisper to the presence beside them in the dark, oh, corpse to be. So tell me about how you found this and what it means to you when you, as a writer. It's loss. It's about this father addressing his baby and thinking about the loss that, you know, he will lose the, that they'll lose each other. And a great feeling that has defined my life is, is sort of loss and a kind of sentimental attachment to home and to people and, you know, I've always been a worried person. I've always been sort of pre-mourning thing. He puts, he says those words, the living in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. And that's the way we live, you know. Our houses all fall. And so, and you have to grab just those moments because of the moments when we really, you know, when we really love each other, when we really, it's like when the emotions, when, when the, the moments when everything becomes clear are really very rare. Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you found tricky, something that you reworked a lot, just something that you're happy with in the end. When I was a kid, before I went to sleep, before she turned off the light, my mother reached for my book and closed it, took my glasses off folded them, laid them on the table, and took my hand. Then, closing our eyes, we said the now I lay me prayer out loud, adding a list of blessings for those who needed them. Together we named the names, always beginning with Mammy, Granny, Aunt Bess, and Aunt Winnie. We turned it into a sort of game, making our way through Madison. From one street to the next, we asked for help, those suffering in this place or that, for people who were poor, who had lost someone, or those who had found themselves in trouble. We traveled through town, saying name after name together. Just think of all of us together, all over town, asking help for each other, Betty said. Try to think of the people who have no one else to remember them. Does it work, I ask? It's something we can do for each other. Bow your head now, bow your head. Maybe there is nothing else. But we can do this for people. We can remember them when we are, they are sick. And remember then, when they go, we have to understand we are all together here. We have to try and help people. It was a time when I heard my mother say what it was she believed in, what she stood for. It was at these moments. Betty always wanted to try to rescue people who were sick or alone, to do whatever she could for those who had no one. She called and checked on those she barely knew when they came out of the hospital or if they were ill. She worried about people who were out there on their own. The worst thing she could imagine was being sick and alone. One night, I decided it was time that I said my prayers without my mother. It was after one of her eye surgeries, and I was scared she was going blind. I wanted to ask God to look out for her, and it seemed she should not be present for this. I didn't want to make her think of what might happen to her. The idea of praying for her in her presence was embarrassing to me. When I told Betty that I needed to say my prayers on my own, her face changed. She dropped my glasses on the table and looked down at her lap before pulling away. I wanted to take it all back, but it was too late. She was gone. She left so fast. She didn't bring it up, but the next night she did not come to my room. Never again would we have our special time. She would not risk being sent away again. 
I grew up to be just like her, like my mother. I flee at the slightest suggestion that I am unwanted. So tell me more about this. It was a memory. I think that it's similar. Like, I always felt really bad about it. I felt like I had really hurt my mother. You know, it a memory grows out of, say, 10, 12 pictures that are floating around in your mind for years, and at least mine did. That particular section, you know, it was it was a it was a picture. It was a picture that had been burnished through years, and I wanted it in the book, and um, but I didn't have any place to put it, and I it just wouldn't. It, it was in various places, and it never worked. And people kept wanting me to lead the book with it, and I just instinctively refused. But then, at a certain point, I remembered that during AIDS, I used to go to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And um, I'm not Catholic, but I used to go. The only thing I could think of to do was I went to and paid a dollar for those little flat pieces of candle wax, and I would light candles for people. And um, and I also said, um, I'm not all that religious, but I do like prayers. And I would say prayers. And I said that now I lay me down to sleep prayer and would go, you know, I organized it by going, you know, through the streets where I traveled and where I knew there were people people who were sick. So I was repeating this thing. And um, so my mother and that scene led me into writing about AIDS. And it led me then to remembering a trip that my parents made to New York when I was afraid that I wouldn't see them again. And they were this trip where they never seemed to me so vulnerable. Uh, and um, my mother got her purse stolen. It's an example of how, at least in my experience of writing, you may write one thing or you may write, you know, so you, may, you may have something and you've written it and you have to have faith that it has come for a reason. And um, you may not know exactly what you're going to do with that. And you may not know what will come of it, but you've got to have a little bit of faith in what your mind knows that you don't and what it's trying. You know, it's like, I really believe that if you're writing, it's like your mind is doing a lot that you're so unaware of. You can't try too hard. You know, my writerly answers to problems came when I was out walking the dog, not when I was sitting angst-written at my computer. So... I think that that passage is an example of something that I wrote that I didn't understand why I was writing. And it led me interesting places. And so you kind of have to have some faith. Where do you write? I wrote this book at a card table in our family room right next to where my mother lies on the couch. But, um, uh, and also one of the tricks... I mean, the process of writing this book, I've always thought, as an editor and a writer and whatever I did, I've always thought that I had to suffer. I've always thought that I had to, like, sit at the computer or wherever I was, that I had to just, you know, be there for 15, you know, 
be there all day and work and work and struggle and struggle. And for me, this process has been about relaxing. It's like you have to relax to let things come out. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't think you do. When I was in Fire Island and on the dance floor, people used to call me Mr. Busyhead. They said, you always look like you're thinking. You know, you're not, you're like, you always look like you're thinking. And I am, I'm internal. I'm always, I'm always thinking about things. And if you're, if you're a writer, and particularly as you become more and more engaged in the process and you actually think of yourself as a writer, you're always looking for the picture. You know, you're always looking for the something that's going to start something and listening, listening for it. And, um, and so, you know, so you don't, you don't try to get away from it. You want it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have an agent named Betsy Lerner, and she was the first person. Luckily, I have, you know, being in publishing for a long time, I have a lot of editor friends. There's no shortage of people to show. How do you deal with rejection? Extreme animosity and voodoo. I, I think that uh, I am able to deal with it much more than I thought. I would be able to, maybe because I've started, I'm so old. I think that one of the ways that you deal with rejection is that you realize as you read things that people have written and as you deal with people, you you see and understand very deeply that 90% of the time um, when they are reacting to something you've done, they're talking about themselves. And so they're revealing as much about themselves as they are about you and what you've done so um you know and and it just becomes you know again and again you get that evidence in terms of people's reaction so you um you tend to have to you tend to let go i think at this point i've let go much more successfully than i thought that i ever thought that I would be able to. Joyce Carol Oates says you have to have the soul of a butterfly and the hide of a rhino. And what is your favorite word? Sejura. It's a poetic term. C-A-E-S-U-R-A. Sejura. It's a small pause. All right. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask you? No, but thank you for having me. You ask really good questions, and it's nice to be able to talk about, you know, the, the real writerly aspects of it. So thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was George Hodgman, author of Bettyville. Our interview was recorded at Aspen Public Radio. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please support First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support matters and will help keep the podcast going. And please don't forget to rate First Draft on iTunes. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks again for listening and supporting First Draft.